Stop. Commercial time. Hey, friends. So do y'all remember how we decided together that 2022 would be our year? Our year to be selfish? The year that we start finally taking the steps necessary to get our financial lives together. Y'all remember that? Well, I decided to get my financial life together by opening up my first investment account and investing in the stock market. Now, all I have to do is actually learn how to invest. (laughs) And I hope you'll join me. My good friend and season one guest, top 100 financial advisor and founder of Building Bread, Kevin Matthews has put together an easy to understand, easy to follow set of resources for newbie investors just like us called the Investor's Toolkit. The Investor's Toolkit is a seven module course designed to guide us step by step through our stock market investing journey. We need this, friends. Well, if you're ready to stop talking about it and be about it, click the link in my show notes to access the Building Bread Investor's Toolkit. And if you use the link in the notes, you'll also get a special sugar-free discount. Y'all know I'm going to take care of you, friends, right? Good. Now back to the show. Two main things that happened with Silicon Valley. And at this point in time, I would not be be worried. Okay. The main thing happened was they had an old school bank run, like you said, 1920s, 1930s. And you got everybody lined up side, outside and say, hey, I need all my money right now. And the bank doesn't have it on hand. And when that happens, you got to close the bank. The bank fails. And now you're listening to the Sugar Free Podcast. Welcome to the tea party, friends. Now tell me, girl, how you like your tea. You know it's sugar free. Now tell me, girl, how you like your tea? Up in here, we like it sugar free. Come through, stop by, get up with me. With your girl sitting back, I'm a little crazy. Ooh, right here with me. It's where you wanna be. Wanna be. Let's get it sugar free. Yeah. Now tell me, girl, me girl, how you like your tea? How you like your tea? You know it's sugar free. Yeah. Hey friends and welcome, 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 welcome to another episode of the Sugar Free Podcast, the life advice podcast for millennial women hosted by me, your girl, your homegirl in your head, Sid Mack. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to episode six, season four of the Sugar Free Podcast. Can y'all believe that we made it all the way to episode six of another season? I was thinking today, friends, and I was like, we are almost two years into this game, okay? Two years, 76 episodes, and almost 10,000 downloads later. We in there. I know that's not the topic for today's episode, but I just wanted us all to take a second today and just reflect on how far we've come together and how much farther we have left to go, okay? All right, so I am so excited to have today's guest on the show because we need to get our financial lives together. As many of you know, there's so much happening right now in the financial markets, and there's been looming talks of a recession for almost a year now, and we just need to figure out what's going on, and we need a credible 
<laughs> a credible source to give us the information that we need. And so disclaimer for y'all out there, everybody on the internet giving out advice on finances, taxes, whatever, ain't giving out good advice, okay? And, and, and I wanna say here today, that the information that Kevin is sharing today is not advice. Kevin is a financial advisor. He's not your financial advisor. This is just for educational purposes only. Uh, utilize any tips here at your own risk and discretion. But I will say that the information we provide here is good, solid advice. All right. All right. So Kevin, our resident financial advisor, welcome back. For those who may not have seen your previous episodes, please tell the good people of the Sugar Free Podcast who you are and what you do. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me. For those that may not know, my name is Kevin Matthews II. I've been a financial advisor and in the personal finance space since 2010. I've written two best-selling books. I have a degree in economics and a master's in business. And my job is to make investing in the stock market a money easy to understand. So that's what I'm here for, to explain a few things. And uh, that's pretty much it. Now, I did not know you had a degree in economics. Like, <laughs> I feel like I should have known that. I don't know why I thought your degree was in business. No. So, I mean, I was with the business kids all the time. Um, but yeah, I'm, my technical training is in economics, which to me comes in handy a lot more when we talk about interest rates and all this kind of stuff that's going on. Um, but yeah, I was I was an econ nerd. Wonderful. This That makes the advising and the information that we're going to be sharing here today even better because I feel like I'm I'm going to be jumping around to a lot of things. And I think that for where our financial system is, it's a lot of economic forces and influences that you really have to understand to understand kind of where things are right now and what we should be doing. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's get into it because, you know, I don't like to beat around the bush. So the first question that I want us to really talk about is recession. Like I mentioned before, I feel like there have been looming talks of recession for almost a year now, maybe more than a year of people saying it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And I'm not even sure, is it here? Are we in it? Did it happen? Did it pass? Like what, what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> like, are so we in a recession right now? <laughs> so technically we are not in a recession right now. And it is a weird phenomenon if you ask me so when we say a recession like we feel like it's a recession because stuff is expensive people are losing jobs that's what it feels like right but in reality you, there's a technical definition and that is that you have two consecutive quarters so three months and another three months so six months total of a contracting economy we call this um gdp loss or a contraction of gdp gdp is called gross domestic products Basically, is you add up all the stuff we produce, right? You go to work, you produce a car, you count that in, in GDP. So if we produce less stuff for two quarters, that is a recession. So last year in 2022, Q1 and Q2, two quarters in a row, you open up, open up any econ textbook, that's what's, what's going to tell you is a recession. So technically, we were in 2022, but things improved. But there is a bureau in the United States, the National Bureau of Economic Research. Those are the official people who come out and say yes, recession or no recession. They still, to this day, have not confirmed whether or not we're in a recession now or even that last year we're in a recession. So it is still an open question. We're not officially in one. But if you ask me, if you check my textbooks that I had to read and pass for my degree, it would say that, yes, we are in a recession. Like right now or we were in We were. We okay. were. 
Yeah, so Q1 and Q2 were negative, Q3 and Q4 were positive. So it was a brief recession if they want to officially come out and claim that, and they still haven't. But there were two negative quarters, and then we've had positive quarters and haven't really turned back yet. Mm, so just so I know, outside of the technical definition mm -hmm. of recession, what are some other characteristics that like are tangible and recognizable for me as a layperson? Because two, I guess, negative or... I don't know. What was it to GDP? Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah so GDP, it, it is not something you're going to feel. You're not going to know. Like, oh, GDP is high today. Like, no one actually knows that. Uh, the truth, what, what they look at is they look at the technical numbers. They look at GDP. They also look at unemployment and they look at other factors and they do just say other factors on the website in terms of, you know, are we trading more with other countries, um, unemployment and where things are happening. And then also look at a lot of nerdy things like manufacturing and farming and whether those things are picking up or not. So those things haven't necessarily tailed off in a, in a way. And also when we look at how many jobs are added to the economy, we're still seeing a lot of positive additions each and every month so far. Um, so that's why so far they're like, eh, you know, we did have those two quarters. But everything else so far is pretty good on a on a grand scale. Gotcha. So basically, when people are not working or out of work and like the mm -hmm. economy is like kind of stagnant, meaning we're not yep. producing things, we're not making things, people aren't working. Th mm -hmm. Those are the hallmarks of a recession. Yes. And then also people not spending either. So you'll see that we track spending, economists track spending every single month. We start to see like, hey, we had a sale and did nobody come out, right? And everybody has over, things are overstocked and people aren't buying as much as what they used to. That's also another hallmark to keep keep your eye on. Gotcha. So how do we, how do we get to being in a recession? Is it something that is just kind of cyclical? I Listen, I ain't a mathematician and I did very mediocre in my little macro, microeconomics class, college, whatever it is we had to take. But I do like remember these like inflation and recessions kind of being cyclical. And mm -hmm. so do these things just kind of ebb and flow naturally or are there things that happen to cause recession? That's a great question. So generally speaking, it is cyclical and it usually happens every 10 years or so. What causes it? It depends. I mean, there was a 2008 crisis and that was an anomaly at the time. Then you had a coronavirus pandemic. That, nobody had that on their bingo card. And that's the last thing that put us into a recession. So it really depends. It's almost, I mean, you could almost never guess what the next thing is going to be that's going to push us into it. Um, but in almost every country, except for Australia, in almost every country, except for Australia, there's like a 10-year cycle of boom and bust periods where things are amazing. Then you go through a recession, which is averages 18 months, and you're back on track for, you know, a normal economic cycle. Gotcha. So I asked that question specifically because I don't know if anyone else felt this, but you mentioned specifically the coronavirus as being a catalyst for recession and the 2008, you know, recession as like the housing bubble as being the catalyst for that recession. Mm -hmm. I feel like this recession, there was no real catalyst. It felt like they were trying to like make fetch happen with this recession. I was like, this feels like the, 
a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if people say yes. a recession long enough, yes. they're going to like force it. And so that's why I asked, like this felt manufactured. So yes and no. So there is a such thing as a self-fulfilling recession. And I do think an element of that is currently at play because if you are a CEO, you people keep telling you it's going to be a recession. You start cutting back now. You start spending less. You don't, you know, you, you don't hire as much because you think you're going into a recession. And then enough people do that and you actually cause one. Um, so that that could still be at play. The main thing this time is both interest rates and inflation. As we all know, stuff got real expensive in the last year or so. And our central bank, we call it the Federal Reserve, has been increasing interest rates to slow down inflation. And there was a point in the late 1970s and 80s where they raised rates so quickly that we actually went into recession into a recession before we hit the 90s. So that's where we are now. They keep raising interest rates. We'll see whether or not they push it too far. And that's kind of what the what people are looking at. So, hey, I was a, not me, but people were around in the 70s and 80s and saying, look, this is a, a repeat of what we saw, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Mm, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I am really unclear like about inflation, like inflation mm-hmm. just means that the price of goods is going up, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So why is that a bad thing? And and I get generally that people don't want to pay more for things, but I've noticed that to help kind of counterbalance that employers are offering more money, like people are making more money, they're able to demand more in salaries. Um, And so it, it kind of unfortunately balances each other out right like I'm making more money but things cost more money so I I just needed that money additional money from my employer to just be able to afford what I could afford before right like it kind of cancels out the buying power but Mm -hmm. stuff naturally is gonna like cost more like I remember seeing like a sign for McDonald's in 1950 and it was like 20 Mm -hmm. cents for a hamburger you know Mm -hmm. what I mean like things just kind of on their own start costing more. And so like, why is it so important to the Fed to increase these rates to kind of check inflation like so quickly and cause this recession? Like, why are they doing that? Yeah. So the Fed has what they call a dual mandate. And the one of their main mandates is to make sure that inflation is under control. Their goal is to have inflation at 2%, just two, which is why from 1950s to now, like, yeah, stuff would naturally increase over time at 2%. That's fine. That's affordable. That's not really a big deal. Last year, we were at 9%. And now it's down to about 6%. So we're talking three times more than what we are used to. And in one year or so, that's fine. That's sustainable. But imagine if it's going up 9% this year, 10% the next year, and it's really hard for everybody to keep up, but also companies to keep up as well, because they want to remain profitable. And if they have to continue paying people more, which Everybody enjoys that part of it, right? Um, but they have to pay more for, for all of their services and everything else. Their profit margins start to shrink and they're not making as much money, which means that they want to start cutting something. And that is usually their workforce. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So so I, I need to back up because this inflation and the, mm-hmm. the rising rates thing. So mm-hmm. the rates that they're raising, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Like what, what rates are they raising? Like, like what is it? Yeah. So the way that it works is the Federal Reserve controls interest rates. When I say interest rates, we're talking about 
the money you get from your savings account. We're talking about your credit card. We're talking mortgages. The Federal Reserve controls all of that. When they raise their rate, that is technically the rate that banks loan each other, right? Bank of America loans to Chase and all that kind of stuff. And when they increase that rate, Bank of America says, look, I still want to remain profitable. I'm going to raise rates on everything else. So it's really a trickle down effect. They change the rate for the banks. The bank change the rate for us. And then that determines our behavior. Once you start to see that interest rates are going up in your credit card, you might spend less, right? There are people who are looking for homes last year or this year. It's like, ooh, it was cheaper in 2020. I'm not paying four, five, six, eight percent or whatever the rate is today when I could have got it at three. So I'm not going to buy a home. And that's where you start to get people to slow down spending, which is supposed to stop inflation. But if enough people stop at the same time, that's when you go back into a recession. Okay. Okay. And so like the, like this is the part that kind of throws me, like Mm -hmm. we, we, we're going to go back because I want to talk about like consumer spending habits and what we should be doing and what makes sense. But, But the part that doesn't make sense to me is I understand wanting to kind of get pricing in check. What I don't understand is purposely throwing things into chaos so people lose their jobs. And that's the goal, right? You know what I mean? Like, it sounds like Mm -hmm. from what you've described, like their goal is to get employers to cut jobs. Like their goal is to make, you know, your credit card interest rate go up. Like the goal sounds like it is to make it more difficult for the average American. Like you, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And that's been a complaint of a lot of people um, in the last, I would say eight months or so. So what they are trying to do is to push it to a point where you don't see a lot of those really negative consequences. So what they're trying to do is like, "Ah, I don't know exactly what number the rates need to be at, but I want to get it right to a point where we're not in recession and we don't see unemployment. But I just on a quote-unquote normal level. That's what they are attempting to do, but it's not an exact science. And that's the problem with it. They can go too far or they cannot go far enough. And that's kind of the the boat that they've been in the last, I would say, year to 18 months. But but you're right. When they quote-unquote succeed, people aren't getting paid as much. Companies don't hire as much. And it's the only weapon that they have on their side to reduce demand and get companies to charge less and just kind of get things at an even level. So it's not a not a fun game, which is why I'm not in that role at all. But that's that's essentially what they have to do is to slow down things enough to where we get back to a normal pace. So the problem is there's no metric for that, right? By the time you raise rates and find out, people have already been laid off. You know what I think else is a contributing factor to why it feels like everything has snowballed so quickly this time is Mm -hmm. because people have more access to information than ever before. And I feel like you have more Americans at all income levels, right? It's not just the rich and the wealthy that are paying attention to stocks and the stock markets and the rising interest rates and what's going on. Like more and more middle-class Americans and even like less than middle-class Americans, I think are paying attention to what is happening and they're feeding into these things, right? Like it's causing Mm -hmm. panic. People are scared. Yeah, yeah, you're right. (laughs) And I think there's so much that happened in 2020 that we're still paying for. And some of it's in a good way and some of it's in a bad way. But like in 2020, we were locked at home. We absorbed so much content, right? Like if I, 
I go back and look at the traffic to my website or what people were, were doing on Robinhood and all those investing apps back then. Once you get exposed to that, you don't really let it go. You still remember a lot of that stuff. You're still looking for content and still shopping. Like there's so many websites where I shop for all types of HBCU gear because I was bored, right? Like I didn't forget those links. Like they're still out there. I still buy stuff from them. Um, so it's stuff like that where it's like I'm already exposed to it and it doesn't leave me. So I'm still spending in the same way, right? I'm still kind of going through those exact same habits to a degree. And to stop doing that is going to hurt, right? We have to figure out what those new patterns are going to be for spending, for the economy and everything else. And that's why you're seeing a lot of companies like Google, like Amazon especially, have to let go of so many people, right? Because people were shopping at an extremely high clip and now it's not what it used to be. And now we have to adjust everything back to what the new normal is supposed to be. Mm, or kind of what the old normal, right? Like, yeah. Like, what like you know. are we going to and that's the thing like we're still even as consumers right are is normal 2019 now is that what we're trying to do just go right back to where we were in 2019 before all this mm -hmm. stuff happened or is is 2021 normal or is 2022 normal like what is going to be that new thing where we're online more digital than what we were before but also not to an extreme when you know people weren't paying student loans everything was shut down. So people had a whole lot more money on, on hand. People had a lot of COVID relief checks and PPP loans where they had way more money than ever to spend on stuff, both good and bad. But that's not going to be the case moving forward. When people have to go back and pay those loans at some point in 2023, I would imagine, then budget is going to be different now because you haven't had to make those payments in three years, right? So that, that again is like, so what's normal now? Because that the last two years, three years wasn't normal and people are going to have to adjust to that at some point. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Like, especially in terms of consumer spending habits, like one thing that I've noticed is that like, if I go to the store, they don't mm -hmm. have anything that I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Got, go get it online, go get it online. Like stores don't have the same level of inventory. And so I found myself being more of an online shopper now because exactly. I feel forced to. So my habits have changed, but I love going into the store. I love touching it. I love feeling it. I love picking it up. I like to see it. I like to judge the quality, no matter what it is, even if it's mm -hmm. like a, you know, a, an apple. I, yeah. I don't want an Instacart shopper. I want to touch my apple. You, right. you know what I mean? I want, to, I want to look at it before I put it in the cart. And now I feel like my habits have been forced to change because there's just nothing on the shelf anymore. There's nothing for me to go like physically see. And so like it is forcing me to go online more. And that's a change in my habit that I probably wouldn't have done if we hadn't gone through this whole thing. Of yeah. And all those habits. Yeah. And all those habits affect companies and who they hire. Right. So like if I was at a grocery store and, or I'm Instacart, I have to hire differently and figure out, well, you know, if everybody's shopping online now, I need to hire more people. But then what if everybody goes back in the store? Then what do I do now? Because now I'm paying for all these people and I'm not necessarily using them. So on a broad macroeconomic level, everybody's still trying to figure out how many people do I hire? How much do I pay them? How many jobs are available? And like get back to, again, like what the new normal is going to be, which is extremely difficult because now the Fed is raising interest rates and a lot of these companies borrow a lot of money to do a lot of this stuff. And if it makes it more expensive to borrow, it makes it harder for them to hire. Mm, this is like a, such a good segue into a topic that I feel like has been on the tips of everyone's tongue recently is like the the hysteria surrounding a lot of these bank failures and collapses. Like, I, I feel like I am 
reading a textbook from the 1920s and like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's not something I think that most of us would have expected of a modern economy where a bank, you know, like run could be possible. And so I think the most visible ones that we've seen in like the biggest banks has been the Silicon Valley Bank and then Credit Suisse. I, I want to talk about what happened with Silicon, like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, and should we be worried? Yeah, so there were two main things that happened with Silicon Valley, and at this point in time, I would not be be worried. Okay. The main thing happened was they had an old school bank run, like you said, 1920s, 1930s, and you got everybody lined up side, outside and say, hey, I need all my money right now, and the bank doesn't have it on hand. And when that happens, you got to close the bank. The bank fails. The reason why the bank almost never has all of your money right there just sitting in a a literal safe is because they take that money and they loan it out for mortgages, again, credit cards, business loan, IR loans, and all that type of stuff. And when that system works, people are paying back the loans on time. They put the money in your account. And whenever you need it, you're able to do that. That's all fine until 100% of everybody asks for the money up front. They don't have it because they loaned out to somebody else. Um, So when you get enough people asking for it, you get a bank run. And that's what happened with Silicon Valley. The reason why they didn't have the money is because they invested in something that was super low risk in most times, but because everybody was rushing to it, they had to sell at a loss. And they lost, I think it was upward of like $80 $80 billion or something something crazy. So they lost money because everybody was rushing to the bank and said, oh, we got to sell. It's going to be a loss and people panicked. So that's how they ran into that bank run. Um, They are really rare. I mean, again, we haven't seen them since like really like 100 years ago. Um, And it's unlikely to happen um, in the future, especially with larger banks. We don't really see that happening. The most important thing is people were insured within like two days. Everybody got their money out. So everything was fine. Um, So I don't think it's still a a time for panic. Okay, so I'm not clear on how they sold it or whatever, like for a loss. Like like explain that part Mm -hmm. to me, just for my own knowledge and information. You know, everyone else is like, how does that happen? Yeah. So one of the things that a bank does, okay? So you go in, you put in $100 at the bank. The bank says, okay, look, I'm going to pay you 1%, okay? And to give you that 1%, what I'm going to do is take your money. I'm going to invest it in a U.S. government bond, right? Which means I'm loaning the government money. The government, as long as they pay taxes, or as long as we pay taxes, the government is going to pay you back 2%, okay? So if I'm investing the money, I'm getting 2%, I'm giving you 1%, I got 1%. Everybody's good. You get a percent, I get a percent, everything's fine. That works until the Federal Reserve starts increasing interest rates. So if I have something that's paying 2% and now the, the government is saying, oh, we'll pay somebody else 6 that bond that I had at 2% is worth less now. Nobody wants a 2% bond because I, you can go get 6 So the value of it was less right now. Now, if they held it for 30 years, they would have been fine. But if everybody's outside asking for their money now, I got to sell it now. And that's what happened. So the, the little 2% bond or whatever it was at the time, it was worth less because the Fed's raising rates. They had to sell because everybody's asking for the money. So they lost money selling. And that caused more people to come in and ask for the money. And it's really just a cycle of losses and the people asking for the money that caused the entire bank to fail. Wow. Wow. Okay. Now th- that makes a whole lot of sense. And so, and and the Fed wants this to continue happening and they want to just keep raising the rates. Because I saw they, they just raised did. it again. <laughs> they did. They did. So the complaint, if you talk to like the bankers and just like, this is all they do, they would say that Silicon Valley was number one, a little too conservative by investing in those. Because everybody knew, and I'm sure we probably talked about it. Everybody knew rates were going to go up. 
why would you invest so much money in something knowing that you that things were going to change? So that's number one. That was the first issue. The other issue is the majority of their customers were all in tech. The problem with tech now is, as we've seen, everybody. If you look at any layoffs, it's always in the tech sector, right? Because they overhired after the pandemic, and those are the people who are taking out the most money right now, just because they have to. They're losing money. If you look at a company like Roku. Their stock value is plummeted. They've been losing money left and right. So they're withdrawing more money out of their bank account just for normal expenses. So when you have all of that stuff at, at one time for Silicon Valley, that's kind of what happened. Other banks like, I don't know, Chase or Bank of America, they're, they're more diversified. They have regular people, they have tech people, business people. Like there's no one sector where they're all heavily invested. But Silicon Valley was not. Everything was in tech and tech has been the worst sector of the market and the economy like for the last year and a half now. And that's another factor that, that really kind of hurt them. Mm, interesting. So, so at what point is the Fed, because I'm sure Silicon Valley isn't the only, you know, bank that's like, like at what point are they going to say like the benefits of potentially cooling inflation, like maybe another percent ain't worth mm-hmm. the mass layoffs, the bank, because it's now it's not just Silicon Valley Bank, right? It's the signature right. bank. Yep. Credit Suisse just accepted a buyout. And Credit Suisse is a huge freaking bank. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, it's like a lot of regional banks had to accept buyouts. So I'm yep. just like, at what point are they going to say, you know, we just going to let it rest? Yeah. So this last week, they raised it one more time. And they said, mm-hmm. this, this is the first time in all of their statements, they always say, hey, we will be raising rates in the future. This time they said we are we're open to it, right? We may raise rates in the future. We don't know yet. So this is the first time that they've said since they started this whole thing that they're gonna kind of sit back and see what's going to happen. So that gives us a little sliver of hope, but it does not seem like their foot is on the gas the way it had been, you know, the last four or five times that they increased interest rates, which is a good thing. I think based on what we've seen, I think we should slow down <laughs> and see what's going on. Um yeah. and and yeah, don't don't just blindly keep going because that's that's what will put you in a recession if you ask me. Um, but you definitely want to stop, pause, and see what's going to happen, and then make a decision after that. That's what I would do. Well, the reality is because you said if they keep going, it could push us into re- recession. The reality is mm-hmm. what they've already done could push us into recession. I don't think we've fully seen the full impact of all this play out. Like it's still relatively new and early. Like. I'm still not so sure based on especially like having this additional information you provided today that we really know what's going to happen. Like you said, they're going to be turning uh, student loans back on, you know, Mm -hmm. soon. And like all these companies are laying off and I've seen non tech companies laying off like Accenture just laid off 20,000 employees um, like this past week, like UPS just laid off a bunch of people like it's it's starting to trickle into other. Yeah. Yeah, other areas where I'm like, ooh, I don't know what the full effect of this is going to be. So they may not have to do anything more to to get there. Yeah, I agree. There's there's a chance that they don't have to do anything else. I think too, like you like you mentioned, like there's a lot of exposure. Like once you're on online so much, it really it could create a a distortion of what could actually be happening in the economy. So for example, we had um we've seen like the major layoffs in the tech space. If I were to ask you how much of the economy of people work in tech, what number would you give? Like 50% of the economy is based in tech in terms of like workforce, 10, 12, what, what would you just throw out a number? 
based on my reading, I'm going to go with about like 12. So, so yes, the answer is yeah. two. Only 2% of our really? entire workforce. Yeah, only 2% of our entire workforce is in tech, which obviously if you're in tech, that's not great. But when you hear 50,000 people getting laid off or even 100,000, that is a bad number for people who work in it. So I don't want to minimize that. But from a broader economic perspective, that's really not the entire economy, right? It's not It's not even 5% of it. So like we have to, it's difficult to do, but we do have to balance like how much is that really? And how many jobs is that compared to the 150,000 jobs that we added to the economy last month or whatever that number was? So it's difficult to, to really put that in perspective, but that's something too, like the headline is going to say one thing, right? That's going to scare everybody. But then in reality, you step back and say, oh, wait a minute, that's not, it, it hasn't hit a crisis level yet. Um, so that's something that we do kind of want to balance and like pay attention to. Gotcha. That's that's a really good point. That's a really good point. And I had like been reading about how, even though the tech layoffs were significant, job growth was still good. And like yep. a lot of people were still employed. So, mm-hmm. you know, like I, that, that's fair um, in that regard. But I, I, I want to say, and I could be wrong, that tech is also one of the areas that affects probably a lot of young middle to upper middle class working professionals too. Mm-hmm. And so the, because of the salaries that a lot of folks in text have, it's affecting only 2%, but it's affecting prime 2% in terms of buying power. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The richness of that sample is like very rich and could have a, a more significant impact potentially on the economy from like how much people are spending than if let's say, you know, it, lower income folks were impacted who maybe weren't spending as much anyway mm-hmm. yeah that's a fair point so so all this right we got we got all this information so the question now is what do we do yeah so like i don't want to sound like you know the the person on the airplane the, the stewardess person don't panic. I mean, that's that's honestly what, what we should be doing. It's not to panic. And the reason is when you panic, for example, and you go and rush to bank, you inadvertently cause the bank to crash, right? If you say, hey, I'm going out, I'm withdrawing everything, call your mom, tell you the same thing, then you're going to cause the exact thing. It's like, it's like a stampede. How do you stop a stampede? Don't run. Now, is that easier said than done? Perhaps so, right? But the only way it happens is when everybody runs at the same time. So number one is not somebody start running at the mall, Kevin. You gonna join the stampede? You don't even gotta know why. You gonna join? (laughs) Look, you're not. You're not wrong. There's a natural urge to do that. But when it comes to the banking sector, you don't necessarily have to do that. The main thing is the system that we currently have in place did work. If you got two hundred fifty thousand, which is a blessing, and under you had you got your money one hundred percent insured. And you might have been out of, you know, you may not have had access for a maximum of 48 hours. That's an absolute max. And that's not that's not all that bad. Right. So, like, I think it's, you know, we we have these insurance limits in place. The system did work. And right now it was a, a very niche bank. Yes, it was the 16th largest in the country. But 99 percent of us ain't never heard of Silicon Valley Bank. Now, call me when it's Wells Fargo or something, and we're going to have a bigger issue. Um, so, like, in Credit Suisse, that's that's a significant one as well. Um, but they they got bought out by UBS, 
and things are, are solid. It's stable. Things People are being a lot more reactive to prevent uh, what they call contagion and a spread where it's not just banking, but it'd be banking, manufacturing, housing, and everything else. So right now the system is working. I don't think this is cause for panic. Um, I know, again, like you said, it's easier to, to say that than do it. But we said the same thing from, from 2020. In 2021, we're talking about the stock market. We said don't panic then. And the market is actually up from then to where it is now. And that really? same principle. Yeah, the same principle still applies. Hmm. So like what specifically can we do as it relates to like interest rates and things that are affected by interest rates? Right. So pursuant to and I hate to use such a lawyerly term, <laughs> but <laughs> from like the reading that I've done, it says that mortgage mortgage interest rates are currently at six point six percent. And they're up from like 4.6% a year ago. And I, mm -hmm. I think it was like less than that, you know, maybe two years ago in terms of like how low you could get a house for in terms of interest rates, right? Like mm -hmm. I think people were getting loans for homes at like maybe 2%, maybe yeah. 3%. And I got so- I 2.9. Oh, you did? Look at you. No, I, I knew it. I just, it was going to go up. I was like, look, it ain't going to get lower than this. <laughs> I, it better have been a good reason. So me and Kevin have a longstanding beef, like a solid beef <laughs> about the benefits of home ownership. And he like, I ain't ever going to own no home. I'm going to rent for the rest of my life. And he, he popped out on the ground with, look at my new house. <laughs> So was that like the motivating factor for you was the the interest rate being so low? Yeah, that was that was primarily it. Um, the discussion was not whether or not I was going to buy a house. It was whether or not it was an investment or a good investment. But aside from that, because semantics matter. <laughs> um, aside from that, though, the reason I bought is because I knew that at some point, anytime we, we cut interest rates, 2008, the pandemic, you cut interest rates to get people to spend more. That's the whole point. And I was like, oh. Rates are at 3%, let me buy now. I might never see this rate again. And now it's double, right? Imagine paying, let's say $2,000 on, on your mortgage. And that's the exact same house now is $2,800 only because the interest rate rose, right? So you got to be, that's why I did it. But the reason interest rates are, are rising and the reaction to it is to slow people down from buying. And that's what they're trying to do. So for me, if I'm, unless you really feel like you've got to buy a house right now, or take out any loan, like I would slow down because you know you're going to be paying a lot more. And if you do have to do it, when and if interest rates are cut at some point in the future, you will want to refinance and get a lower rate to cut down your payment and pay off that debt a lot sooner. And I was going to mention that because my mom, for example, has still been encouraging me to like look for homes because of the simple fact that prices are coming down. And so at yep. the time when you bought your home was like, what, 2021? Mm -hmm. And so 2021, like we were in a housing frenzy in terms of everybody was rushing to buy a house mm -hmm. and the prices were up. And so once you buy the home, you're locked into that price. Like the price is fixed. You ain't mm -hmm. ever going to be able to manip manipulate that. But my mom was like, well, while prices are low or like back, to, like getting back to a more reasonable figure, go ahead, buy, stomach the high interest rate for maybe a couple of years and then refinance. Yeah, that's that's a solid strategy. Um, it depends on, you know, there's a difference, right? So the math is high price below interest rate or low price at high interest rate. So you have to figure out 
what that balance is because there are in some markets and some houses where the price is falling enough and the interest rate is high enough where you're in the exact same position or even better off. So you do want to pay attention to that. It's really going back to the math, seeing how much you would pay if that fits in your budget and all that kind of stuff. Um, but there there are cases that buying could still make sense. Um, but again, depends on a lot of factors and most importantly, what the math says. Okay. I'll, I'll rock with that. I'm still going to die on the hill that owning a home. <laughs> Listen, I'm still dying on the hill that owning a home is a better investment than own, having an apartment. And to me, when I talk about making a sound buying purchase and why I feel like it's a better move, like I'm not out here buying nothing at a premium price. You hear what I'm telling you? I just bought a pair of Nikes for $35. Like I'm always going to be looking for the best deal, the best bargain doing my research. So I'm not like telling people to just go out there and buy any home, but I don't think you should be going out here haphazardly buying anything, not even dish soap. Like do your research, get a coupon. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I feel you, I feel you. Right? And so, but if you are diligent, in doing your research and making sure you understand, then I always think that home ownership is the better way to go than renting. And I'm going to die on that hill. Rest <laughs> in peace. <laughs> Listen, Kevin had the people in the internet streets thinking we had a legit beef, how badly we was going back and forth about this housing thing. And it's been for years. This has been for years. <laughs> Four years, because I also think that people on the internet, for whatever reason, think like the internet is real life and they, they should just listen to whatever and whatever's put out there on the internet without doing their own independent research. And I don't like the narrative that's encouraging like younger folks and like younger minority folks not to pursue home ownership and not seeing it as like a viable wealth builder and generational wealth. Like I I still think that for the average person, owning a home is one of the best investments you'll make in your life. And what what I would say, my view on it is there are no such things as absolutes. Um, not to say that you were saying that, but I mean, there are people like, uh, there's a guy who's famous that. author. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like, oh, there's like, you should 100% buy every single time. You're absolutely going to make money. My case has always been, that there, it depends has always been my thing, but most importantly, that I don't think renting in and of itself is just automatically throwing away money. If, which has always been my case, if you're taking the difference of that and investing in other areas, um, math, depending on where you are, can definitely change that. But like, for example, for me, been in this house for going on two years, like getting my deck done and getting these, these flower beds and stuff redone. That's like $10,000. Like that goes when I calculate how much money I make when and if I sell the house, a lot of people don't always factor that in. They say, oh, I made $200,000. I'm like, okay, what were you paying? And all of those maintenance fees, subtract that out and tell me what the percentage is. On average, okay, on average, people make about 3% per year from the value of their house. The market is making seven. So if I'm looking at percentages, right, if I'm investing in the market, and I'm putting in whatever I'm putting in, I'm making 7% a year compared to the average person at three. And I can move whenever I need to. I can sell half, right, of the of, of my stock if I need to. I can sell half the house, right? So there are a lot of advantages of renting and investing the difference. Now, if you're just renting and doing nothing compared to, buy, to buying a house, and that's almost a no contest. 
But if you're doing the opposite, you're renting and you're saving whatever you're saving and you're investing in the market, there is a case, a case where you can end up better off and have more money at the end of the day. We had two professors at Hampton that went ham over this exact debate. Both were finance professors. One was somebody who rented for 30 or 40 years. I think his net worth was like four or five million. And another guy who, who owned. And his net worth was, they were roughly close. I think he had like three and a half million. And they would go back and forth every single year about what was better. So math, it depends on what the math says, is what I what I say. Okay, that's fair. I, I'm i not like a... I'll, I'll give you that. I'll get concession, right? If if you rent <laughs> and do the the investing thing, I think for me, like I'm still like a very novice investor, and I'm still like a little gun shy on investing. And home ownership is just something that to me is a little bit more easier to understand. Um, yeah. In, in terms of like you know just like lay person, and so as an investment, like I feel more comfortable investing in it because I understand it. I still don't really understand the stock market or know if and when I'm making a good investment. And that's and that's fair. And I think that gets to the real answer is do what's most comfortable for you and do what you are best and most informed on. Like my my dad has um he has never invested in a stock in his life. I've been trying to get him to do it. <laughs> and he's a real estate person. He's got a bunch of rental houses. He was like, yeah, but you know, I can see it. I can feel it. I know what it's worth. And it worked for him. I was like, look, I'm not going to force you. If it's working, it's working, right? So whatever works for you, your market, your comfort level, and then adjust as you grow and move. Like I ended up buying a house, right? Will I make more money by doing so? I don't know. That ain't the point, right? So it depends on what you're trying to do, what the math says for you, and most importantly, what works for you. That's what makes personal finance personal. That's fine. Fine. I'll rock with that. But even if you even if even if you don't make no money off the house, it's a tangible asset that you can pass on to your kid. Like everybody you yeah. got to live somewhere. You know what I mean? You, everybody got to live somewhere. If your kids have an opportunity to live for free because you've made the investment of paying that home yeah. off for them, then it's still providing them with generational wealth. Right. And that's what we talk about, like making sure the next generation is good and pulling and pushing mm -hmm. them forward. So the house is going to be a good investment either way. And I could, I could also say, cause I, I had a discussion with someone else where it's like, yeah, I, I could absolutely pass on the house. Let's say the house is worth 400,000. I could do that. Right. And they can continue paying taxes on it or whatever, or I can pass on a million dollars in cash and you want a million or you want the house, you know, and it's, there are benefits. Like I can live in here rent free and do whatever else I want to do. Or I can have a million dollars up front and do whatever I'm going to do that way. So, yeah, you're right. There are advantages of, of passing out. I plan on doing that. I don't know how my kids are going to split the house, but it is what it is. But I also plan on leaving them a significant amount of, of cash, bonds, or whatever. Um, and they'll have options. And I think that's the most important thing at the end of the day. Fair. And if you want to leave a little something for your favorite attorney, <laughs> you know, just go ahead and write me in there as well. <laughs> Okay, so I just have a couple more questions about what we should be doing with our money right now before we let you go. So mm -hmm. from like credit cards, interest rate on credit cards has bananas right now. Absolutely bananas. So it's at about, according to um, Wallet Hub, the average interest rate on a credit card right now, even if you have perfect credit, and I am a victim of this as well, is at about 22%. 22%. Now, I'm not going to tell the people out there what my credit score is, but I will say that it is excellent. And I had to start like aggressively paying off my credit cards because I was like, 
I can't pay no interest. So, but what do we do, right? Like the credit cards are there to save us, to provide the safety net. What do we do now? And how do we navigate in this world where credit interest is 22%? Yeah, so you do want to aggressively pay those down. Um, there are a bunch of different strategies out there between, you know, snowball method or, or avalanche, like pay, if you have several credit cards, like which one do you pay out first? Um, that's debatable. There are merits and advantages and disadvantages for each one. But you do across the board, any debts that you have right now, because those interest rates are higher, you want to be as aggressive as you can while still remaining balanced to pay off those debts. Some people, and I, I say this with an asterisk, um, you can transfer to a, a card that may have less interest. That is an option, again, depending on what the rules of the cards are. Is there a fee for doing that? But there are people who have been extremely successful in doing that as well. Uh, my personal favorite, put it on a spreadsheet, figure out what the interest rate is. And then there are several apps out there that will give you a schedule of how much you need to pay and how fast you can be debt-free based on those interest rates and how all that stuff is calculated. So that's what I would do and just say, look, Here's my schedule. Every month I'm paying this much. And on this date, October 2023 or whenever, I'm going to be debt free. That's absolutely going to help you because we expect either rates to go up further or stay where they are for an extended amount of time. And that's going to really hamper your budget and hamper what you, what you may want to do here in the future. Are there any credit card, lower interest credit card, like alternatives that we can kind of utilize when we absolutely need to put something on a credit card? It it depends because um, credit scores, you can have the exact same card, but a different credit score and that can change your interest rate. Um, so that's one thing. If you have a newer card, there are some cards that will give you like 18 months, zero interest. So that's an easy way to do it. I know PayPal is an option for that too, depending on um, which way you sign up. So those are options. Um, I think the most important thing too, which is sometimes a little bit more difficult, is you usually want to go for your cash reserves first, which is always why I advise have your goal of having like three months of your rent or mortgage or six months of your rent or mortgage in cash. So if you run into a spot, you can just pull out of that and not have to pay interest rates or, or not have to you know go into debt or anything for it. That's supposed to be that buffer before you have to reach for that card. If you're already in that space and you've already, the credit card debt is already there, then again, Go back, schedule out, see what, you, what your options are in paying off, and then see if a balance transfer could be something where you can take it to a lower interest card and then pay it off easier that way. Okay. Okay. So so one more consumer debt that I know is looming for a lot of people, the the student loans. Are, are these rate hikes affecting interest rates on student loans too? That is a good question. I'm not sure because I don't want to give a give a wrong answer. My belief is that it doesn't, but I'd rather like go back and double check. So that one I'm not sure yet. Gotcha. Gotcha. I, I will I'm say yeah. I will say for private loans, if it does, for private loans, that's the one you would be a lot more concerned about than federal. Gotcha. That makes sense. Cause a private loan is just like a, a personal loan. Like it's basically like and they're the, yeah. and they're controlled by banks and banks want to make money off of it. So they're the ones who are going to say, oh, yeah, we're going to increase. I mean, in fact, there were banks. Uh, there was a I think it was, it, was, it was a Missouri agency, if I'm not mistaken. But I know like Nelnet and others sued to block forgiveness because they want to make money on it. So they're obviously a lot more uh, incentivized, uh, the private loan industry versus, you know, others. Wait, so the forgiveness was going to affect private loans as well? No, no. So there were other private loan services. So like SoFi does private loans, right? So when the Fed paused, 
SoFi was like, well, we don't want to be the only ones to, to pause it or, or to make people still pay. So they pause it as well, and they're losing money by not charging people. So they want the forgiveness to not go through so more people can refinance with SoFi and make money that way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't even I didn't even realize that. Yeah, SoFi got their start from charging lower interest rates than what the Fed was. And they're they call it social finance. They want to take your public student loan uh from the Fed and just bring it over here to SoFi. We'll give you a better rate. We have better terms, so on and so forth. And they were gonna make money that way. But when they paused it, it was like, who wants to refinance with SoFi if I'm paying zero percent interest and I don't have to pay at all with the Fed? So, so far and other banks and stuff were kind of disgruntled because they haven't been making money, haven't been able to convince anybody to move over with all that debt and stuff. Mm. Mm. Oh my gosh, this is too much. I know you said like we shouldn't, (laughs) we're stressed, but I'm not, I, I am a little stressed. So what can we do to put ourselves, this is like the final question. What can we do Mm -hmm. to put ourselves in a better position and get ahead? Are, Are there investments that we should be making? places that we can put our money like I can say for myself personally my regular old savings account is like making interest whereas it it hasn't made interest in 10,000 years yeah (laughs) you know (laughs) what can we do to make sure that we get out ahead with all this craziness yeah I think the number one thing is to get organized get organized figure out what is going where? So whether you, however you want to track your money, you can. Again, I like Excel. I'm a nerd, but there are a bunch of apps out there that would do all this stuff for you. Some banking apps will also tell you and give you like a little um, a graph say, hey, you spent X amount on food this month. And I'm like, ooh, now that I know that, perhaps I'll eat less. So you won't. Get it organized. You won't. I, I, won't. Look, I ain't gonna lie, I'm not. Look, I, I will, look, I will take an extra lap on the track before I stop eating. So, <laughs> I feel um, that. I because the, go ahead. It, it tastes too good. It tastes too good. I'm sorry. But I'm not tacos. only that, it's like a quality of life thing. Like right, it is. Oh, you enjoying yourself? Eat your yes. tacos. Yes, yes. I look. I got treadmill. I'll be all right. Um, but get organized. So in terms of like, what are all your debts? How much is it? What are the interest rates? Figure out where the money is going. That's number one because you can't master what you don't measure. I think that's the most important thing. Once you have that organized, your next step is to set priorities. Which one of these things do you want to focus on? Because that overwhelm and that panic is normal when you're trying to tackle eight things at a time. It's hard to try and own a home, pay off your debt, pay off your student loans, uh, save and invest all at the same time. That's a lot. That's a lot. Focus on one thing first. I like to start off on the savings, but you choose what you want. And then you start making a specific plan for each of those things. So get organized, set your priorities, and attack one goal at a time. That's going to be your most important thing. What about like bonds and stuff like that? Like, is now a good time to invest in those? Because they're they're up. Like, like is so it, it like, yeah. It It can be. It can be. I think your savings account right now, depending on where you are, can pay like close to like three to five percent, depending on, I mean, rates are changing every day. Um, so I think that's, that's all because you can still get access from it and to it. So I think that's one thing. Um, treasuries. So these are like ultra safe government bonds are another place that are paying like four or five percent, super safe. Um, as long as, you know, again, as long as taxes are coming into government, you're going to get paid there. So that's another option. Um, those are, those are among the safest options right now. Um, but again, no investment is perfect. Everything has some risk to it. So I want to throw that out there as well. 
So when you talk about a treasury, is that like a CD or what's so a treasury? So a treasury is a, is a government bond. So basically you're loaning money to the federal government. They're going to pay you, you know, four or five percent. Um, so it's it's like a step up from a, a CD. So you have a little less access to it. I can't just go and like pull out five dollars today, but I'm giving that money to them. And usually, you know, a year, six months, it'll expire and you'll get your original principal back. Plus 5% or whatever. Uh, yeah, plus the 5%. Yeah. Oh, so it has like a term on it. Exactly. A maturity date. And so like mm-hmm. how how long can you get one for like 20 years or something? Uh, So they have 30 year ones is the maximum. And then they have like different different uh, delineations. So they have like 30 year, 10 year, five year, one year. And then they have like, like even small ones, like 30 days or so. Um, so they have different different maturities. You can go to like treasury.gov and it'll show you there. Some investment apps also have it available to you as well. Um, so different flavors depending on what you're looking for. The key thing, because you don't want to be Silicon Valley Bank, is that right. when you hold to maturity, you are guaranteed to get your principal back if you hold to maturity. Now, 30 years is a long time. So let's say I get a one year or a five year. If I sell it anywhere between one and five years, I may make money or I may lose money. So that's that's the catch there. When they raise interest rates, the, the interest rate is going to be higher on the new one, right? So the one I have right now is going to be worth less if I sell it today. So you do want to be careful. If you can leave the money there, then you're going to be fine. But if you feel like you have to sell it for anything, there there's the gamble there. It could be worth less, could be worth more. But you're only guaranteed to get that principal and get all your money back if you hold it through maturity. So one one more question with this as I'm like figuring that. So when you put it in the uh the treasury, the five percent, are they giving you five percent every year or at the end of that 30 years, they give you your money back, your full principal plus just five percent of that principal? Like you know what I mean? Yeah, you're getting five percent every year. So it's it's giving off depending on how much you put in right you that's basically passive income for some people it's like i'm putting in whatever every year y'all gonna give me five percent and i'm good if, if i got enough money i can live off that five percent right but at the end let's say i put in a thousand i get my five percent every year end of the term i get my my full one thousand dollars back so that's like the the oh. benefit and advantage of doing it that way i see what you're saying so they're paying cutting you a check for the five percent like every year like an annuity yeah yeah, yeah almost uh-huh. Okay. All right. So now and, we want to. The thing is, like, now it's five percent because, like, a few years ago, they're like, they weren't gonna pay you nothing. <laughs> it's like I have a percent of something crazy. So, like, five percent. Like, if the market's paying seven, and I'm taking risk with that, right? With seven, five percent for almost, almost no risk. I might take that. That's that's a good compromise. So now rates are high. Those rates can change in the future, but right now, that's one of the better places to to put your money if that's what you're looking for. Oh, good. Oh, I feel like I got a good tip today. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much again for joining us. So, you know, we can't let you leave without doing our sugar-free quickies. So the sugar-free quickies is a series of either or questions and you have to answer either or you cannot answer both or none. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. So when you're ready to relax, would you rather read a good book or watch a movie? Oh, watch a movie. Watch a movie. Uh, Books. I enjoy reading, as you can see in this bookshelf back here, which all of those I've actually read, except for the bottom shelf. Um, But books are thinking. I take extensive notes. If y'all are watching video, 
this is uh, The Color of Money, The History of Black Banks. So like, I, this is like studying, which is good. I enjoy studying, but it's not relaxing. Um, so yeah, definitely a movie. Mm, well, you know, you can't say point to the books and be like, oh, I, I have all these books because, you know, people got books they ain't ever read. Like, just because I got books don't mean I'm reading them. But but I'm like, I, I, I'm going to give it to you. you I mean, but you see, the, you see the little tabs in the notes. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. my little scribbles. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to give it to you. I knew you were going to say movie, though, because I'm in your vibranium vibes Marvel. That is true. Club. That is true. <laughs> so I knew you were going to say that. Okay, a couple more. So if you were going on vacation, would you rather go to a mountain ski getaway or beach retreat? Ooh, that's a tough one. I would have to say a beach retreat because I, I just have done that way more often. Um, but yeah, beach, it's it's just a lot more more I can do I feel like I can get in the water I can decide to swim I decide to just go outside I don't need to be slapped in the face by the cold and I think that's offensive to me so I'll, I'll take the beach you know I I always ask this question you know and most of my guests are people of color and people of color ain't going to the mountains I haven't been in forever <laughs> like I so I, I started skiing at age four I'm not an Ooh. Olympic skier by any means but like there is a, a calm and quiet to it but also, I was like, how many coats I got to wear today? <laughs> you know, like, it's a lot of work to be out there, even though the, the air is crisp and cool and all that kind of stuff. But, like, I can just go on the beach and just chill. Okay. I appreciate that you've actually skied before and can can answer that, like, having experienced both activities. Mm -hmm. So I do appreciate that. Okay. So one more. And this is specifically for Kevin. Who has the best chicken sandwich? Fried chicken sandwich. Chick-fil-A or Popeye's? Oh. Um, so, like, to give people a peek of what's in my brain, I'm thinking, do I get the Kobe Jack cheese if I'm at Chick-fil-A? Or am I considering the crunch that I can get <laughs> at Popeye's? So I'm going into detail here. So if I'm comparing apples to apples, Sandwich, chicken, no cheese. Could you have the cheese option at, at Popeyes? And I probably wouldn't trust the cheese at Popeyes either. I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna have to go with Popeyes because it's the texture of the crunch that thing sets it apart. And I can't include all the other sauces and stuff that everybody like. Oh, you can dip this stuff like no, just chicken for chicken, sandwich for sandwich. I gotta go with Popeyes. Ooh, okay. So I heard that the quality of the chicken sandwich at Popeyes declined since the craze. Has it? I mean, I had so many. I ain't been back in like a while to, for, okay. for health reasons. So I really, I really haven't had one from Popeyes because I had so many when it first came out that I really ain't been in like a year and a half. So I, I don't okay. know. I could, I could believe it though because Chick Fil A, if nothing else, Chick Fil A is consistent. Okay. Well, you know, I don't know because I don't eat meat, but yeah. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I know you like rate stuff like food you yeah. eat. Yeah. <laughs> on your page. So I just wanted to 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 see where we stood today on that debate. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation. It is always a pleasure to have a fellow Hamptonian Hampton stand up. Okay. A fellow <laughs> Hamptonian at the tea party. As always, thank you so much again for joining us, for getting our finances in order. And I don't know about any of y'all out there, but for me personally, 
this journey in our 30s is all about leveling up. It is all about making more, earning more, spending more. We are not spending less. We're earning more, we're spending more, and that's it. Like, period. And so we're not going to let these layoffs, we're not going to let these rate increases, we're not going to let this manufactured recession throw us off course. Okay, so y'all take the information that Kevin provided today and you employ it and you use it and you build some generational wealth for yourself and your families. Okay, all right. All right. Well, thank you guys for tuning in to another fantastic episode of the Sugar Free Podcast. Make sure you tune back in in two weeks for more great conversation, plenty of information and education, and of course, more of the most exquisite tea that's 100% sugar free. Woo chow. Mm-hmm. What a show. We shared some good old tea today, didn't we, friend? Thank you for your presence. I truly enjoyed you at the tea party. And we appreciate you sipping on some sugar-free tea. With me, your host, Sid Mack. Until next time, be sure to connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Sugar Free Podcast or at Sugar Free Pod. You can also visit our website at www.sugarfreepodcast.com. See you again soon, friends. And be sure to keep the tea party going, a With plenty of tea, that's 100% sugar-free. I said, hey, ladies and fellas, if you're listening, as a woman of color, it is so hard to find lipsticks and glosses that really pop on my beautiful brown skin. Y'all know what I'm talking about? When the lipstick is giving lackluster instead of Lil Mama, okay? (laughs) Well, I discovered the most radiant, saturated, and pigmented lipsticks for richer complexions, and I found them at the lip bar. The Lip Bar is a black woman-owned and led beauty brand that focuses on providing effortless beauty options for all women, but especially women like us with highly melanated skin. Oh, and did I forget to mention that all Lip Bar products are vegan and cruelty-free? Get into it, friends. Make sure you click the link in the show notes to receive 10% off your first or next order of beauty products at the Lip Bar. Hashtag, you're welcome.